Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. A project to reduce biofuel cooking to improve the health of both the climate and people. Divining the secrets of the black widow spider. Discovering our Neanderthal ancestry. But first, how and why UC San Diego physicist Brian Maple takes matter to extremes. All on this edition of On Beyond. Brian Maple's lab at UC San Diego, ordinary matter sometimes behaves in unusual ways. We're trying to do research at the forefront of science where we don't know what's going to happen and we don't know what properties these materials are going to have. And of course, we don't always find something, but uh, when we do, sometimes uh, it can open up a whole new area of research. Maple's group takes matter to extremes to bring out elusive and unexpected traits. They forge new kinds of materials, then test them under intense physical conditions. The equipment in this room is for uh, achieving low temperatures in the millikelvin region. That's just a fraction of a degree above absolute zero, so cold that atoms nearly stop moving. At these frigid temperatures, new physical traits sometimes emerge. One that has captured Maple's interest and that of the world is superconductivity. Superconductivity is a, a property that many um, metals have, and what happens is as you cool them below a certain temperature, the electrical resistivity vanishes and, and goes to zero, and, and by zero, I really mean zero, they become uh, perfect conductors of electrical current. Superconducting wires could carry electricity over long distances with no loss. Wound into an electromagnet, the same wires could store electrical power indefinitely, making intermittent sources of sustainable energy, like solar and wind, more reliable. Magnetic levitation of high-speed trains is um, the most uh, romantic application. Trains that float above their tracks would take advantage of the way superconductors behave when they're placed in a magnetic field. When you cool the material into the superconducting state, the magnetic field gets expelled. So it kind of acts like a magnetic mirror. Onboard superconductors would create a magnetic reflection to lift the train from its track. But so far, superconductors aren't very useful because they only work when very cold. So there are lots of things in this room that are superconductors that aren't superconducting because we're here at room temperature. Our dream is to make a superconductor that will go into the superconducting state at or above room temperature, in which case, you know, the world as we know it would be dramatically changed. The world we know occupies a very narrow range of possible physical realms. Brian Mipple's group pushes materials past these limiting boundaries to try to understand how strange traits like superconductivity can emerge. We do this at low temperatures, often at very high pressures, and in high magnetic fields. We want to perturb them profoundly. So to get them to low temperature, you can do this by cooling them with liquid nitrogen, which will get you down to 77 Kelvin, or liquid helium-4, that gets you to 4.2 Kelvin, 
and then if you pump on that to low pressures, that will get you to about one Kelvin. But if you want to go lower than that, then you have to use other techniques. And what we use in this room is called um, helium-3, helium-4 dilution refrigerators. That gets you down to millikelvin temperatures. That's colder than outer space, colder than anything we know of in the natural world. Now for pressures, if we want to go really high, then we have to use diamond anvils. And those are basically two gem diamonds that we press together in a device. And the diamond anvil devices can get you up to megabar pressures. Close to the pressure at the center of the Earth. By seeing how materials behave in these alien, yet precisely controlled conditions, Maple hopes to learn what factors determine exotic phases of matter. Along with understanding, hopefully will come uh, predictability, in, in which case you can then develop a strategy for finding materials with uh, you know, desirable properties. We spend a certain amount of our time prospecting for new materials uh, with uh, properties that will be different and interesting uh, and useful. A lot of what we do is based upon known materials, which we can change by replacing certain atoms by other atoms. So we have a material with a different set of elements. Or we might actually have a hunch that we'll find a material with a certain composition and just try to make it. In specialized furnaces, they melt novel mixes of elements to forge new alloys and focus intense beams of light with a polished metal lens to create pure crystals of promising new materials. We want to basically rearrange the uh, electrons in the solids uh, uh, so that they interact more strongly or differently or uh, make changes in their crystal structures that might reveal a new property. It's the structure of the crystal lattice and the arrangement of atoms within it that seems to determine how easily electrons flow. The possibility of unimpeded flow of electrical current has intrigued scientists ever since superconductivity was first discovered in 1911. Seventy-five years later, copper oxides were found to become superconducting at 160 Kelvin. That's warmer than the liquid nitrogen commonly used in science labs and halfway to room temperature. These are developments that those of us who have worked in superconductivity for our careers at that time uh, thought could never happen or suspected could never happen. It was really uh, a, a change, you know, a profound change in this field. More recently, experiments with iron nictides have proved promising as well, but these findings are puzzling. The parent compounds are magnetic and insulating in the case of the copper oxides and uh, magnetic in case of these iron-based compounds. These uh, insulating and magnetic states can be suppressed. And then uh, once you do that, you often find superconductivity. And so these things, uh, which were once regarded as mutually exclusive, now seem to go hand in hand in many materials. Magnetism and superconductivity have something in common. Both seem to involve electrons with synchronized motion. In fact, one of our working hypotheses is to look at materials that, that exhibit other types of phases, like magnetic phases, that come about because of these strong electron correlations, and then uh, modifying them such that we can move out of this magnetic phase and into a superconducting phase, which may come about because of the same kind of basic interactions, 
but in a situation where we've changed the conditions and allowed that superconductivity to emerge. I'm pretty sure that as we look at more and more novel materials that we can't even dream about at this point, that the conditions will be such that new phenomena will occur and the properties that we're studying now will be enhanced and it's probably a good guess that eventually we will get a room temperature superconductor. I don't see any reason why not. We are in the Surya village, the town next to the village. Virabhadran Ramanathan is back on the streets of his native India. Ramanathan is a professor of atmospheric and climate sciences at Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. He is embarking on another among dozens of research projects he has headed up over a career of 40 years. But this one might be the most personal. Project Surya, named from the Sanskrit word for sun, is on one level an experiment to measure how the atmosphere responds to the removal of smoke and soot particles that typically color the sky in this region of India's Uttar Pradesh state. It is also a demonstration of how people in many developing countries could live healthier lives while making an immediate impact on climate change. In the West, Diesel exhaust is the main source of soot and other forms of black carbon that contribute to global warming. In developing countries like India, biomass burning, especially to fire household stoves, is the main source. The goal of Surya is to change the way people cook. Three years ago, I realized that the climate problem is significantly more serious than what we had assumed it to be, basically that we have already committed the planet to about two and a half degree warming already. And the only reason we've not seen it is that this warming has been masked by particles we have put in the air which reflect sunlight and cool and has offset the warming. We have to do something to reduce the warming. One of the most effective ways to cut down what I call short-term climate warming agents. Black carbon is one such warming agent. Black carbon comes from diesel combustion, fossil combustion, but also biofuel cooking. So I have focused on black carbon from biofuel cooking because it's also a major health hazard. causes over 2 million deaths in Asia alone. And my work suggests it's also contributing to retreat of the Himalayan glaciers. I have personal experience with this. You know, when I used to spend my summers in the village, and I've seen how it's done, and it causes uh, tremendous health problems. In October 2009, after more than two years of gathering support and financing, Ramanathan and collaborators from the Energy and Resources Institute in India distributed efficient, low-emission cookers and solar-powered lanterns to households in the village of Kairatpur, located south of the Indian city of Lucknow. Most village residents live below the poverty line, gathering sticks, wood, and cow dung to make fires in homemade stoves. 
Now, during the first phase of Surya, these residents will serve as collaborators, deploying air filters in their houses and transmitting data through supplied cell phones. We want to uh, take a large region of at least about five to 10,000 homes with a population of 30 to 50,000, switch the cooking, essentially create a black carbon hole and capture that with some of the most sophisticated instruments we have ever deployed, both in each of the homes, making measurements inside of air pollution and black carbon, measure outside, and we also want to monitor this region with satellites. I, I think Surya is a unique uh, project in the sense that it is bringing uh, the, the three critical aspects of uh, climate, of uh, rural health and rural development together in an integrated manner uh, by, by a very critical intervention which focuses on, on cooking and uh, the negative effects of cooking, particularly on, on the health of women and children. So by focusing on that and focusing on looking at better options for cooking and better cooking technologies, uh, Surya is aiming to a, intervene at the household level in terms of improving the indoor air quality, mm -hmm. uh, which of course links it directly to, to, the, to health and to rural development. Ramanathan hopes that the legion of clean burning stoves will grow from hundreds to millions across South Asia. Many obstacles remain though. The scientists are overseeing the supply of cookers to people who can scarcely afford them. And once the cookers are introduced, the researchers must also manage the perceptions of the stoves by their intended users. In fact, one component of Project Surya is a sociological analysis of what motivates people to accept new ways of doing things in their everyday lives. That feedback will guide the rollout of cookers as the project goes on. Ramanathan understands the challenges but remains optimistic. I think this whole concept of uh, switching cooking to cleaner cooking is uh, easier said than done, primarily because the fuel is available free. And so that's going to be one of the biggest hurdles in switching to the alternate stoves, which invariably invests, you know, requires investment in fuel. And the second is, this is something they have done traditionally, and we know from our own experience of barbecuing, cooking with fresh fire and smoke has its own aroma for the food, which they're going to miss. But my hope is the other half of the population, three billion, have switched. I think. While the challenges are immense, my own personal uh, optimism is because the climate has changed the equation. Currently, it's our estimate roughly 3 billion of the world's poor are forced to use biofuel cooking. It's not because they want to destroy the environment, simply because they have no access to fossil fuel. Even if they had access, they can't pay for it. So if we can use the climate to help them, my calculations suggest it'll have an immediate effect in slowing down global warming. Kai Ratpur is but one small testbed in which an acceptance of new ideas is underway in developed and developing nations alike. 
what ultimately protects future generations from the worst effects of global warming, might have less to do with international agreements than with the spread of the very individual discovery that solving the world's problems sometimes means solving problems right at home. This has been a presentation of Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego. So there's not a lot of research that's been done on black widow spiders, which is surprising because if you say the word black widow spider, everybody knows what you're talking about. Out of the North American species, there's really not that much that's been published. And there's lots of species worldwide that really we don't know very much about at all. So I was really interested in just figuring out the basics of their mating system. So we know that they do mate, obviously, but um, we didn't really know whether the females were actually cannibalistic. Um, whether the males can mate more than once, or whether they do, and whether the females can mate more than once, and whether they do, and if those things are beneficial. So there are lots of really um, cool but basic questions that really needed to be answered about their biology. So here's one right here. What's this? That's a web right there. So that's what I did. How do you see that? Yeah, so you spend like a hundred hours looking for, <laughs> looking for webs, and then you develop an eye for them. Uh, so we're looking in kind of grassy fields, and they make their homes a lot of the time in gopher holes um, in order to stay cooler and to probably keep the eggs cooler over the really hot summer. So every day we come along and we check uh, twice a week to see um, if there's any new egg sacs in a web. So this one right here has an egg sac, and so this is what we would be looking for. It's interesting when you come across the spiders in the field when they have an egg sac, often they have um, their arms sort of draped across it, uh, kind of protectively. You didn't get that leg to move. Oh. Yeah, See? here she comes. Yeah, she knows I'm a fraud. One thing that's really awesome about black widow spiders is their webs. They're so crazy and chaotic looking, but they're actually a really cool reflection of the spider's life. In the lab, I monitor the spiders that I'm using for my trust experiment. So these are all virgin spiders, and I'm uh, subjecting them to some different treatments. Uh, so these ones here are being fed, and you can see that they've gotten pretty big. They'll get a little bit bigger by the end of the study, for sure. Um, and these ones are starving, and uh, their abdomens are starting to get pretty small. Uh, they can survive for quite a while without food, so it's not particularly cruel. Um, they'll just get small enough so that it changes the way, hopefully, that they build their webs. Um, so the big ones will have lots of re resources to put into their webs, and the smaller, starving ones uh, won't have those same resources, so their webs will be fairly thin. And we'll see whether that makes a difference as to uh, what males will be attracted to. So the research that I'm doing is actually pretty unique. Uh, there hasn't been a lot of information published about this species at all. 
And, uh, well, I'm just um, interested in adding to our knowledge not only about Black Widows, but also um, to our sort of general knowledge about how mating systems work and how mate choice works and how mate choice can change and shift depending on the population demographics and the distribution of mates within the environment. The discovery that Neanderthals and humans interbred shook up the field of anthropology and prompted headlines around the world. A key figure behind that discovery is Professor Ed Green, a bioinformatics expert at the Baskin School of Engineering at UC Santa Cruz. Green coordinated the Neanderthal Genome Project while at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. The Neanderthal Genome Project is um, a remarkable resource for understanding not only the history of our species and how we interacted with them, but also understanding the important biological changes that have happened since we diverged from Neanderthals. I view Ed Green's project to sequence the Neanderthal and analyze it in comparison with the human genome as one of the greatest scientific projects of our time. This is really a project about origins. This is a project about understanding who we are and how we came to be. The genome is all of the DNA that's passed on from one generation to the next, all of the genetic information that you get from your mother and your father. One of the purposes of a genome project is to get a comprehensive list of all the genes. The genome contains the genes in some linear order. The genes themselves carry out all of the functions that you have to have carried out in order to be alive. At UC Santa Cruz, Green is affiliated with one of the world's leading centers for genomic research, the Center for Biomolecular Science and Engineering. Professor David Hausler leads a group that assembled the first working draft of the human genome sequence and created the UCSC Genome Browser. If you just go to genome.ucse.edu on the internet, You'll find uh, the browser and you can select the Neanderthal genome analysis as I've done here. And you can see the cave in which they recovered the bones. Here's a picture of the bones and a reconstruction of what a Neanderthal looked like. But contained within this are all of the DNA sequences that were obtained from the Neanderthal specimen. And they're matched to the human genome so that you can see the corresponding segments of the human genome and then we can start to explore what the differences between Neanderthal and human may mean. Data collection starts by getting a bone that has DNA in it. What happens is the bone is taken into a clean room, and in the clean room you drill a small bit of this bone to, with a dentist drill to pulverize it and make uh, bone powder. Then we take a solution that will dissolve DNA, and do a DNA purification from this bone powder, and hopefully there's DNA in there that can be sequenced, go into a sequence library and go on a machine. This is uh, really where I come in after all of those things have been done in the lab and in the um, sequencing facility. Looking at these DNA sequences, which are just strings of A, C, G, and T, and try to make some biological sense of this. 
Well, we are here in the sequencing center at UC Santa Cruz, and um, there are lots of sequencing machines in this room, and they're all chugging away on samples, spitting out DNA sequence data. And the sequencing facility here, run by Nader Foreman, is uh, really cutting edge in terms of not only having the, the um, latest technology for us to generate data, but also in exploring new kinds of technology and new ways to make libraries and new ways to generate data that are useful for genome assembly. In December 2010, Green and the same team published a second groundbreaking study based on ancient DNA. This time they discovered a previously unknown group of human relatives called Denisovans, who lived in Asia 30,000 years ago. What we have done is to generate um, complete genome sequence from DNA extracted from a small tip of a finger bone that came out of a cave in Altai Mountains in Siberia. And what we've learned from this is that this finger bone belonged to a member of a population that's distinct from the Neanderthals who were around at that time and distinct from modern humans. It's a terribly exciting project. Like all scientists, there's the thrill of discovery that um, moment between when you didn't know something and you do know something and you're the only one who knows it and you know maybe it's right maybe it's wrong and you can you know, hopefully try to figure that out but being right there on the cutting edge for something that other people will care about and, and you get to see it first. Ed Green's cutting-edge research sequencing the Neanderthal genome earned him the Newcomb Cleveland Prize for the top paper published in the journal Science in 2010. Reporting from UC Santa Cruz, this is Guy Lanier. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.